0: Good morning, this is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Sentinel Radio here in Philadelphia on WWDB 860 AM Talk Philadelphia. Breaking news this morning as we have the comments made by member of Congress, Ilhan Omar, now spreading across the globe like wildfire. First, a recap of the story. Only a few days ago, Ilhan Omar was asked, what is the source of political... Uh, uh, opportunity and support for the nation state of Israel in the United States. And we find ourselves with her answering first, it's all about the Benjamins making a reference to the false notion that it is money coming from Jewish Americans that supports politicians and then therefore leads to their support of Israel. And then when she's asked to clarify what is the source of that funding, she says it's APAC. The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which is a large advocacy group for Israel, which is bipartisan in the nation's capital. It doesn't have any preference towards Democrats or Republicans. In fact, it's been criticized by Democrats and Republicans for not taking a more partisan stance. And then the opposition against her statements erupts with the American-Jewish Committee, the Anti-Defamation League, AIPAC itself. And thousands of other concerned Americans that do support Israel, not because of the money that goes to politicians, which it really doesn't, but because of the animus, which is showing up on her Twitter feed. The question we'd like to explore in the first segment for this morning is Ilhan Omar an anti-Semite. And does she cavort with other purveyors of anti-Semitism for weeks, months, even the better part of a year? the Islamist Watch Project at the Middle East Forum has been tracking Islamists in politics. We've talked about this extensively on this program in the past. Whether it's millions of dollars going from American Islamists to political candidates running for office, some Muslim, most not. If it's the statements of Islamist candidates for office in the run-up to the 2018 midterm election for the House of Representatives in the U.S. Senate, And looking at the influence that organizations like CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, ICNA, the Islamic Circle of North America, or Islamic Relief, the world's largest Islamist charity. And the intersection and nexus of the individuals that sit on the boards of these organizations, those who work for these organizations, and those who receive both their financial and political support. A story which was ran by Sam Westrop, the director of the Islamist Watch program at the Middle East Forum, after Omar came out with these statements, clarifies the answer to the question, is Ilhan Omar an anti-Semite? And the bigger question is, why should our listeners be concerned about that? Omar, after her quote was put out on Twitter, apologized, saying that, She didn't understand how her comments could be taken as anti-Semitic. And this only happened after the Democratic leadership of the House of Representatives, Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, and other members of the Democratic leadership called on her not to just be condemned, but also that she should apologize. Mr. Westrop's article starts off as so. Despite battling accusations of anti-Semitism, Representative Ilhan Omar is due to speak this month at a fundraising event alongside a senior charity official who has published social media posts praising the killing of Jews. Islamic Relief USA is hosting a fundraising dinner for Aid to Yemen on February 23rd. Representative Omar is due to speak alongside senior Islamic Relief USA official Yusuf Abdullah who was widely criticized in 2017 after the Middle East forum found he had expressed violently anti-Semitic ideas on his social media accounts. So let's just put this together for a second. Omar is first accused in 2012, going back seven years of making an anti-Semitic tweet about Israel. That largely goes unnoticed as she gets more popular acclaim in the election coming up to her eventual placing in the House of Representatives in 2019. It's brought up during the race, and then she apologizes for it. She says, I didn't know that it could have anti-Semitic undertones. But that's not the first time that she said something about this, because it's not just about what she says, it's also about who she associates with. And the fact that her staff did not do any due diligence, and even if it did do due diligence, it would be an even worse case situation. They claim right now that they didn't know who the speakers were because she is not just making anti-Semitic statements. She is publicly cavorting in the presence of other anti-Semites who are calling for the killing of Jews. The article continues. Abdullah, who serves as Islamic Relief USA's operations manager, so she's not just going to speak next to someone who has these opinions. She's going to speak at an event hosted by an organization which employs an anti-Semite. Abdullah shared a very beautiful, modernized version of a Palestinian folk story about a resistance hero, this is all in quotes, named Zarif al-Tawal, who took revenge against Jewish gangs, which had purportedly attacked the Palestinian village by providing guns to, quote, kill more than 20 Jews and fire rockets at Tel Aviv. This is what Abdullah is posting on his publicly available social media accounts and Omar is going to be on the same stage next to him. Other posts refer to Jews as stinking and claim the Jews put the outside wall of Al-Aqsa, the mosque in Jerusalem, on fire. Abdullah also liked a comment on his Facebook post that calls on God to, and I quote, wreak revenge on the damned rapist Zionists. Oh God, they are no challenge to you. Shake the earth beneath their feet and destroy and Lot. But Abdullah's statements don't just take place. Christie referring to the West Bank and Gaza is occupied. Abdullah wrote, Christie kneels down on his knees before the Jewish lords and says, I am sorry. Only making money makes stuff like this happen. Mr. Christie, Muslims should remember this very world very well. So now we, we have definitive evidence that Omar was going to appear on stage with an anti-Semite who makes anti-Semitic statements, and not just those which are using typical canards against Jews and tropes, but those that were calling for the killing of a minority in the United States of America. Put that to the side. She's made her anti-Semitic statements. She uh, reportedly apologized for it. She's now planning to take the stage with another anti-Semite. But the bigger question here is what exactly is Islamic Relief, like we said beforehand, the world's largest Islamist charity, doing, hosting, and employing an individual like Abdullah? We have to look at Islamic Relief and its dozens of chapters around the world and accusations made against it to further find reason to condemn Omar. The article continues. Islamic Relief USA has previously defended its senior officials' anti Semitism, claiming that their comments had been mistranslated. However, Islamic Relief USA refused to provide alternative translations and refused to comment on the fact that some of the anti Semitism was expressed plainly in English. Now, I know we here in Philadelphia have our own dialect of American English, but this John is not necessarily going to go in the certain way that we have another american-based organization which is employing anti-semites which is purveying anti-semitism which is playing host to it in their public events argue with us about what the meaning of what they said in english was and just to take a side on the arabic translations our organization the middle east forum has an office in israel we have representatives in jordan in turkey in egypt in lebanon and we have access to native speakers of dozens of different dialects of Arabic. I don't know the claim that Islamic Relief is putting forward is accurate because we already had it checked out by our native Arabic speakers. We've gone way beyond Google Translate, which is not even a tool that we use, but we've gone to the source of what they're saying. I find their claims unfounded and, frankly, ignorant in the wake of a think tank doing this work. But more about Islamic Relief and its franchise. Over the last few years, the United Arab Emirates has designated Islamic relief as a terror organization. Major European banks like UBS and HSBC have shut down its accounts because of their worry that Islamic relief funding was being used to support terror organizations. Moreover, The Bangladeshi government banned it from working directly with the Rohingya Muslim community and refugees over reported fears of radicalization. Germany and its federal court of auditors opened an investigation into Islamic Relief Germany's use of taxpayer funds. A Swedish government report named it as a front for the Muslim Brotherhood. The United Kingdom and its charity commission started an investigating its involvement with an extremist preacher who advocated the death penalty for homosexuals. The Tunisian government is reported to have investigated allegations that Islamic Relief was funding jihadists on the Libyan border. And lastly, even here at home, members of the U.S. Congress have launched an inquiry into a reported FBI and IRS investigation of Islamic Relief's activities. So let's do a quick review. The UAE, major banks in Switzerland and the United Kingdom, Bangladesh, Germany, Sweden, the United Kingdom, Tunisia, and even the United States all have their questions about Islamic relief. And here we have a U.S. congresswoman making statements against Jews, Jewish Americans, Israelis, all over the world in general. She's appearing on a stage with another anti-Semite, That's calling for the killing of Jews hosted by an organization with over nine countries investigating its links to the anti-LGBT community, to known anti-Semites, and even openly supporting terror organizations. What is Ilhan Omar doing in February that is not American? What she's doing is she openly supporting the enemies of America? More after these messages. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at wwwislamist or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Every day, the
1: men and women of the United States Marine Corps We always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand. For each other. For our nation. For us all. The few. The proud. The Marines.
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. So just a quick clarification about Omar's statements. There was a a press release that was put out this morning by her office and we would uh, not be doing what is due just to her office if we didn't read that statement and then offer our response. After the story by Sam Westrop from the Middle East Forum's Islamist Watch Project, came out about Omar's plans to attend an event hosted by an anti-Semitic organization with other known anti-Semites on stage, this update was issued. After the story below was covered by the Jerusalem Post, the Washington Examiner, the Daily Wire, JNS, and other publications, Islamic Relief removed Yusuf Abdullah's name from the event. Then, Jeremy Slavin, the Director of Communications for Representative Ilhan Omar, publicly messaged the Middle East Forum claiming that this story is inaccurate. Yusuf Abdullah will not be speaking or attending the event with Representative Omar and was never scheduled to do so. Please correct. The Middle East Forum had the uh, opportunity to issue this correction, which is not needed to be corrected. The Islamist Watch website published a statement saying, this is astoundingly incorrect and appears to be a deliberate attempt to deceive Unfortunately for Mr. Slavin we have copies of the original poster as it appeared as recently as this morning And I'm I'm looking at it here if you guys want to be able to check it out online Go to emmyforum.org slash Islamist dash watch and you can find the original event poster I'll read it just so that we have it on record Islamic Relief USA presents Save the Blessed, an emergency campaign for Yemen, scheduled to take place at the Hilton Tampa Airport, West Shore, February 23, 2019, at 6 p.m. in Tampa, Florida. Featured keynote speaker, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Motivational speaker, Imam Bilal al-Zuhiri. Munshid Kari by Muhammad al-Zahid. And... The allegedly removed speaker here with his name, his picture, and his title, Yusuf Abdullah, motivational speaker. So it's not bad enough that she was making anti-Semitic statements or that she planned to be on a stage with an anti-Semite hosted by an anti-Semitic organization. Her office is now blatantly lying to the American public about who was going to be on that stage. I guess she really is starting to feel comfortable in Washington, D.C., if only in her second month of office, she feels comfortable enough to have her staff lie about her public activities. More on the Omar story, maybe later in this hour, but definitely more in writing on our website, meforum.org. Last week, the Middle East Forum hosted a conference focusing on Qatar, where we asked the question, is the country a U.S. ally or... Is it a global menace? There were dozens of speakers who joined us at the International Spy Museum on February 6th of last week, and I had the privilege to be able to interview three individuals about Qatari influence operations in the United States, Jim Hansen from the Security Studies Group, Ronald Sandee from Blue Water Intelligence, and Oren Litwin, the director of the Islamist and Politics program at the Middle East Forum. Some of the takeaways that I was able to actually learn about at the conference was that Cutter has its fingers in the pot associated with every single avenue of global commerce that it's interested in, whether it be global sport and its manipulation of the FIFA 2022 World Cup using bribery and other dirty tricks to try to get that tournament to go to Doha, whether it deals with American politics, where it employs over a dozen lobbying firms shelling out millions of dollars in order to promote its nefarious agenda in Washington, D.C. It also is quite active in Europe, where it's bought up PR firms, soccer teams, and other avenues of commerce to be able to throw shade on its opponents in that continent. And moreover, we learned about Cutter's support for terrorist groups, paying hundreds of millions of dollars to Shia extremist groups in the Middle East just in the form of a ransom payment because some of their citizens in a hunting party in Iraq were kidnapped by militias. It's extensive support for Iran and Turkey and other malign actors in the region trying to create an imbalance between America's allies in the Gulf, Israel, Jordan, and Egypt. With America's foes in Turkey, Iran, and also other non-state actors which it considers to be terrorist groups. So with all of this information on Qatar available publicly and not just coming from organizations like mine, but also like organizations such as Amnesty International and the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, publishing extensive reports about Qatar's human rights abuses associated with the millions of foreign workers who are being held hostage in Doha with their salaries not being paid, their passports not being issued to allow them to go home, and dozens of deaths with no reason for their untimely demise being issued to the home countries with these workers going to Qatar with the hopes of a better future and returning home in a pine box. So if you have organizations on the left, you have organizations on the right, you have extensive information available at the public's fingertips of how evil this country and its ruling family is ruling both at home and its attempts to destabilize our allies abroad. Why does the United States continue to engage with this country? There's five things that the U.S. can do to be able to address the calamity that is Qatar. The first is to require its state-owned media outlet Al Jazeera to register under the National Defense Appropriations Act of 2019 that required foreign outlets especially those in Washington DC and those that have the ability to broadcast video being able to stream their opinions across the rest of the world to register with the US government. It would be akin To the Russian-owned and operated RT, cable news station, and Sputnik radio station, having to register last year as foreign agents of the Russian government, Al Jazeera should be held to the same standard, especially in the wake of their promotion of anti-American, anti-Trump, anti-Semitic, and other vitriolic rhetoric that serves only to support the Qatari government's position. The second item that the U.S. government should undertake is that of amending the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, which has actually provided cover for the Qatari government to hack American citizens. Some on the left, like an employee of the Center for American Progress, and some on the right, like Republican fundraisers, and even some members who were involved with the Trump campaign's 2016 election bid. The third item that the US government can take or a third action that the US government can take to hold Qatar to account is having the US Soccer Federation and the Department of Commerce, along with the FBI and other law enforcement organizations to launch an investigation into the 2022 bid for the Qatari World Cup. Over a dozen individuals have already been charged and convicted in connection with Qatar's malign behavior in attaining that global sporting tournament. But a more formal investigation into the government and the country's activity is due. The fourth item that the U.S. government can investigate or can launch is looking and reviewing at the American military's presence at Al Udeid Air Force Base in Qatar, the largest deployment of American air power in the Middle East. There's a lot of flat land throughout that region, and there's no region, there's no reason why the U.S. has to choose to be in a country which is actively trying to disrupt its interests and its national security priorities in the Middle East. And last but not least, Qatar's support for terror organizations and individual terrorists. I got into an argument this morning with Dr. Andreas Krieg, a known vocal supporter of the regime in Doha, and I made several pointed comments to him that I'd like to raise in terms of why I think it's a problem with what Doha is doing. Moreover, why I think that there has to be public attention to it, and I'd like to be able to address this here on the air live so that we can get a better understanding of exactly what it is that I'm trying to say. First, Qatar plays host to Hamas, a U.S.-listed foreign terror organization. Second, the political interest office, the, the main global embassy of the Taliban outside of Afghanistan, is located in Qatar. Third, Qatar's main avenue to be able to get to the rest of the world is flying over Iran, the Islamic Republic, which just celebrated 40 years of failed revolution. And fourth, Qatar has funded organizations like Shia militias, the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and other malign Shia actors, which was ostensibly part of a ransom payment. But no ally of the United States should get a pass on giving tens of millions of dollars to terror organizations. So... What's the response here? What can the U.S. Congress and the U.S. government do to stem the Qatari support for terrorism? A bill which was introduced in the last Congress, House Resolution 2712, HR 2712, would name Qatar and its larger cousin Turkey as state sponsors of terrorism if they continue to host Hamas and other organizations that the U.S. considers to be promoters of terrorism. It failed in the last Congress because of a concerted Qatari effort to lobby against the bill. It should be brought up in this Congress, passed, and signed by the President. So these five policy recommendations, which were all discussed ad nauseum last week, I hope become the policy of the U.S. government in the next congressional term ahead. I know one member of Congress who would probably vote against this, Ms. Omar, but 434 other members of Congress can step up and hold this malign global menace to account. After these messages, we'll be joined by a president of the Middle East Forum celebrating our 25th year anniversary, Dr. Daniel Pipes. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org.
2: Take a look under your bed.
1: It's going pretty well. I feel like I never have time for myself. With him being around more, it really lets us catch up on things. His memory isn't what it used to be. We get up and we have coffee. He usually wakes up at 4.30. Then we go for a walk. He needs lots of my attention. I do need to keep an eye on his medications, though. That's important. Sometimes I feel like a pharmacist. I'd say John and the kids are adjusting pretty well. They honestly have no idea what I'm going through. It can be a little challenging, help. but so far so good. I could really use just a little help.
2: For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a
0: community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. As we wait to be joined by Dr. Daniel Pipes of the Middle East Forum, we have an opportunity to go over the news of the week. Two items particularly uh, came out at me that I was paying attention to in our daily roundup, which is written by Michael Levinson, our Washington, D.C. resident fellow at the Middle East Forum. And I'll talk about one story and then we've been joined by Dr. Pipes. This is Venezuela's self-proclaimed leader, Juan Guayado, is working to re-establish diplomatic relations with Israel and is not ruling out his placing the country's embassy in Jerusalem. According to an interview with the Israeli newspaper published Tuesday, Israel last month officially recognized the Venezuelan opposition leader's interim government and its then president, Hugo Chavez, broke, broke off ties with Israel in 2009 after Operation Cast Lead in Gaza. Good for the uh, disputed president or uh, self-proclaimed leader Guayado in Venezuela, and we hope here that Maduro is quickly replaced in the hopes of restoring democracy in that country and its benefits for all of its potential allies in the Middle East. Dr. Pipes, welcome to the program. Thank you, Greg. So I know that you've uh, written on Venezuela in an article that's place in the Wall Street Journal. We don't have to talk about that so much, but you've commented recently on the commonality, of a uh, instance that actually happened where Venezuela had shipped 900 million dollars in gold to Turkey a country which if we compare the two systems of government is very much like Venezuela Uh, speaking about Turkey itself this is a country which you have been covering extensively for decades and I was hoping to start off our interview with you giving an impression of what is President Erdogan's current position in that country and what is he doing right now to consolidate power if he hasn't already? And how should the West look at him?
3: Well, he consolidated power a long time ago. <clears throat> I would say the last real election was in 2014. And since then they have been uh, mock elections where, you know, the outcome in advance, you just don't know what the numbers are going to be. Uh, He is a tyrant. Uh, If you say anything, if you sign a petition protesting something or other, you might well find yourself in jail. Now, it's not the worst of the tyrannies. Uh, It is not um, as brutal, as uh, crazed as others, but it is a tyranny. And there are many consequences from that, including an economic decline, which is ironic because Erdogan established himself on the basis of his economic success. And now his fighting the interest rates, his uh, erratic foreign policy, his oppressive domestic policy have all caused foreign direct investors to hesitate to put their money in Turkey, and the results are clear, a decline in the currency uh, and much else.
0: So you've been quoted as saying that while Iran is the main threat to U.S. national security interests in the Middle East today, Turkey is the threat of tomorrow. Can you elaborate on that statement?
3: Well, Iran is clearly the greatest threat today, the building of nuclear weapons, the export of extremist Islamist ideology, the uh, low-grade jihadi uh, violence, and so forth. Uh, Turkey is not a threat in the same way. Uh, They're not building nuclear weapons and so forth. But they are building an indigenous military capacity, military industrial capacity, and they are ever more unfriendly to us. So I I see Iran this month is Iran's 40th anniversary, or the 40th anniversary of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And I just yesterday, predicted that there won't be a 50th anniversary, that uh, the regime is not going to survive. It's going out on a limb, but I think it's in a pre-revolutionary state right now. And all that's needed is a leader to emerge. For example, the son of the of the last Shah is someone who is eager to fill that capacity. And maybe, maybe the Iranians will turn to him or to someone else. Once it happens, I see the regime as uh, very fragile and vulnerable and likely to be overthrown. In which case uh, the Iranian people, government will not be an enemy of the United States, but Turkey will stand out as the problem for
0: Americans. So so it's interesting that we're bringing up Iran right now because there's a uh, gathering of world leaders, specifically those from the West who have a somewhat anti-Iranian position or anti-Iranian government position and those coming from the Middle East. I, I believe it's actually the first time that we have an Israeli Prime Minister and other Arab Foreign Ministers meeting in a Western capital, I'm speaking about Warsaw, joined by John Bolton, the US National Security Advisor, Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and the subject subject of the two-day gathering is Iran. Uh, What do you expect to come out of this uh, conclave in Warsaw? And what can it do to help propel to to make sure the situation doesn't emerge where there is a 50th anniversary of the Islamic Republic?
3: It is basically a conclave of American allies that agree with the U.S. position. the are pulling out of the Iran deal The tough attitude towards the towards Tehran. I I think it will enhance that position slightly but not a great deal because it will be clear that all sorts of powers are not there are not in agreement so I I don't see this too significant
0: Also on the sidelines of this conference it's been reported that U.S. Special Envoy for the peace process, Jason Greenblatt Jared Kushner, another envoy uh, President Trump's son-in-law and other American officials will be presenting their initial ideas of what a Uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace accord might look like. And um, I know that you have had some uh, opinions on this subject, but in general, what do you think is going to be the subject of conversation between those Arab foreign ministers, the Israeli representative, and the uh, American officials, especially pointing out that no Palestinian, even though they were invited, agreed to come to this conference?
3: Well, not only did they not agree, but they urged others, others not to go as well. Uh, the, as I see it, Trump's emphasis is on putting together a posse to take care of Iran, so-called Middle East NATO. And he is doing everything he can to have good relations with the Saudis, including yesterday not submitting the analysis required by Congress of what happened with Khashoggi. Uh, He just didn't want to go into that subject. Uh, Also, getting the Israelis goodwill by moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And, uh, so far unsuccessfully, trying to get Palestinian goodwill by giving them a whole lot of things they want, in particular recognition, U.S. recognition of the state of Palestine with Jerusalem as the capital. for reasons having to do with the temperament of Mahmoud Abbas and the dynamics of intra-Palestinian politics, where Hamas is all the time breathing down the neck of the Palestinian Authority, the PA is not going to the table. And this is frustrating the American side, which wants to get the Arab, which be, so Palestinian is very conflict wrapped up so that everyone of all the state, the Saudis, and others can move against, put pressure on Iran. So the Palestinians are the lion whinny. They're the ones who are involved. They're the ones who are causing this effort to be impeded.
0: And it's not just the United States which is feeling frustrated because of this internecine intra-Palestinian rivalry, but we also see other countries in the region trying to take advantage of the split in Palestinian leadership with a report that came out uh, yesterday, I believe, about over a billion dollars being granted to the Hamas terrorist government in Gaza by the nation state of Qatar. Now, I, I know since 2012, I know that this has been a subject that our organization is focused on. For the last few months, if not the last few years, the Qatari influence operations in the Middle East and their ambitions and the reason and rationale for them getting involved. But but specifically on the Hamas portion, why do we have an Arab government funneling over a billion dollars to a uh, a, a, a polity which is ostensibly anti-Western when they are trying to come off as pro-Western?
3: There's an easy answer, and there's a different. You have an easy question, and a difficult question. The easy question is to answer is uh, the countries are playing a double game, where they have an enormous American air base and fund all sorts of educational efforts in the West and Katrina aid and the like to win our support, our approval. On the other hand, it is an Islamist, even a Wahhabi government, that wants to support. movement. So it's doing both at the same time. That's the easy part. The difficult part is why is Qatar a very fragile, very vulnerable state, I should not say fragile, a very vulnerable state with this gigantic gas, uh, with a tiny population in a very difficult region surrounded by Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. Why is it helping revolutionary causes. Why is Al-Jazeera and the money it spends and the arms it provides going to the forces of insurrection? Why do you think that's the last thing the Qataris want? They want to keep things quiet. They're a commercial hub. They have things to sell. And yet they do. Uh, and I can only ascribe this to the character of both the prior leader and the Hamad and the current leader don't think that's
0: irrational. Now, there's also the idea here that it's not just uh, Qatar which should be held responsible for its uh, malign activities in the Middle East and going beyond that almost on a global level, but there's also some countries and uh, governments that the U.S. considers to be its allies that are playing ball with the Qataris. For instance, I don't think that it would have been possible for a billion dollars to have been transferred to Hamas by Qatar and its representatives without a wink and a nod, or at least the full blown acquiescence, of the Israeli government. So Israel considers Hamas to be a illegitimate actor and 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 does not necessarily call for it to be overthrown, but calls to be held it to account. It bombs it whenever it gets rocketed by them. It puts its members in the West in, in, in the West Bank in jail for financing terror activity and for being member of a terror organization. Israel is all out against Hamas, at least so it says publicly. But then the latest transfer of cash was $15 million a month and three suitcases going from an Israeli-controlled checkpoint in Erez, which is at the northeast side of the Gaza Strip, into Gaza to fund not the humanitarian quotes, and I use that term very, very uh, lightly, but also Hamas salaries in the Gaza Strip. So in your opinion, two questions. One, why are the Israelis allowing this to happen? And two, if you disagree with them allowing it to happen, what should be the position of the Israeli government as it relates to allowing Qatari support for Hamas?
3: It happens because the Israeli security establishment, the army, the the intelligence services, the law enforcement, generally are inclined to seek quiet. They don't want problems. They are very short-term. They're very timid. It's very status quo. And so getting money for the Palestinians, whether it be through UNRWA or from Qatar or other sources, isn't itself a good thing, because uh, if the Palestinians have funds, they are less likely to erupt in an intifada, overthrow the Palestinian Authority or other steps. As I say, it's very short-term. It's myopic, even. Uh, What they're not doing is looking at the larger picture, Uh, which would require a very different approach. Uh, My suggested approach, that of Israel victory, would be to cause the Palestinians to realize that their effort to eliminate the Jewish state of Israel is hopeless and that they should give it up. And that would be done in a very different way. One simple illustration would be for the Israelis to say to Hamas, you send over the first missile and you get cut off from everything coming from Israel, food, water, medicine, electricity for one day. You send over a second one, you get cut off for two days, etc. I think Hamas would quickly realize it can't do this and it would start to behave. There can be many other steps along these lines. The Israelis have enormous power. They're not using it. They're appeasing, they're hoping for quiet it's
0: not working so i know that the middle east forum has been quite active in reaching out to israeli politicians members of the security establishment the public even going so far to engage with youth groups with veterans organizations the supporters of widow and terror organization excuse me terror victims who were affected by organizations on the other side of the uh, gaza border or those terror cells in the west bank on April 9th, we have the elections for a new Knesset. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the current Prime Minister of Israel, putting his uh, corruption investigations aside, is facing a very formidable challenge in the presence of former Israeli Defense Forces Chief of Staff Benny Gantz. And I think that if I was going to ask you one thing that you would ask out of any individual party list candidate that's running for office in terms of Israel victory, what would you want to see a member of Knesset say in uh, the run-up to this election?
3: Well, a number of party leaders, uh, and and, uh, uh, near mere leaders like uh, Gideon uh, Saar, Avigdor Lieberman, not Kelly Bennett, have uh, spoken about Israel needing to win. Uh, those are the magic words for me. Any Israeli who talks about winning quickly uh, is on the right track. Anyone who talks, as Benny Gantz seems to have done, about the 2005 withdrawal from Gaza being an exemplary action is something to be emulated on the West Bank in the future.
0: Right, let's invite a, a final victory here rather than continuing war after war. And just your last thoughts. Uh Uh, Mr. Pipes, on the 25th anniversary of the Middle East Forum. Congratulations to uh, your, our organization, on this seminal moment. And any thoughts to share with our listeners before we part ways?
3: Well, yes, we just uh, celebrated the actual day in late January, and uh, we'll be having an Mm -hmm. event to celebrate it in May in New York. Uh, So much has changed. Uh, for example, the internet. There was no internet to speak of in 1994, or sure. this marginal. Uh, we have taken up new topics such as Islam in the West, uh, but the fundamental issues of the Middle East are achingly familiar: Iran, Arab-Israel, Islamism, and so forth. Uh, While there is some good news, there is also definitely bad news. Certainly, Saudi Arabia's. I think potentially good news. Turkey is definitely bad news. So, not any huge changes in the course of
0: things. Mr. Pipes, congratulations again to you and to the forum, and we look forward to having you again on the program.
3: Thanks. So do I.
0: Thank you. After these messages, our final thoughts. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly. Publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the why? (laughs) Or so you think. Sure, you know the why for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the why, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background, and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. And to sum up our last 10 minutes on this program, I invite our listeners to call in at 1-888-329-3306. Again, the call in number is 888 888- 329-3306 888-329-3306 as we go over the news of the week that was broadcast since we came on live last Wednesday February 6th so first a little bit of a comment as it deals with the Omar issue not coming from me or our listeners or anyone else involved in politics but coming from the very top of the American power and establishment with President Trump On Tuesday, according to The Hill, calling on Representative Omar to resign for her comments on Israel that were criticized as anti-Semitic. The president was quoted as saying, I think she should either resign from Congress or she should certainly resign from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Omar apologized Monday for suggesting that U.S. support for a Jewish state is the result of money flowing from the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, an influential pro-Israel lobbying group. And as we previously reported at the top of the hour, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Hoyer Quickly condemn the comments. However, the Democratic leadership has said that she would not be stripped of her committee assignments. So it's okay for them to criticize Representative Steve King, who definitely deserved to have been removed of all of his committee assignments. But when a member of Congress from the Democratic side, albeit a freshman lawmaker, comes out and says that it's time for uh, Jews to be held to account and starts using anti-Semitic tropes, she gets to keep her positions. If It's not hypocrisy according to partisan lines. I don't know what is. In Iraq, according to AP News, the top Pentagon official assured Iraqi leaders Tuesday that the U.S. will stick to its limited military role in that country, a message aimed at recent talk by some Iraqi politicians of forcing a U.S. troop withdrawal. Pat Shanahan, the acting Secretary of State, excuse me, the acting Secretary of Defense, said in talks with Prime Minister Abdel Abdul Mahdi that he stressed U.S. respect for Iraqi sovereignty, an issue that has become a hot-button topic Among Iraqis, since President Donald Trump suggested using Iraq as a base for monitoring neighboring Iran. Considering the fact that the U.S. has been in Iraq for the past 16 years, has tried to provide some modicum of stability for that country, it might be incumbent upon their government to show a little bit more respect for American forces and not allow Iraq to turn into a forward operating base for Iran and allow a certain amount of detente between the two warring countries. In Egypt, according to Reuters, Royal Dutch Shell, NEBP, and ExxonMobil were among the winners in one of Egypt's largest ever e- gas and oil exploration tenders on Tuesday, as the country looks to sustain an investment upswing spurred by major discoveries. Egypt expects investments of at least $750 million in the first stage of exploration and the total of 12 concessions announced, Petroleum Minister Tarek El-Molla said. The Egyptian natural gas holding corporation's bid round which was its largest in history, included border areas in the Mediterranean Sea, as well as land areas in the Nile Delta. Any's discovery of the giant Zor field in 2015, the largest in the Mediterranean, and that estimated to hold about 15, excuse me, 30 trillion cubic feet of gas, has raised interest in exploration in Egypt. And now turning to Saudi Arabia, according to Al Arabiya. Saudi Aramco's trading arm, Aramco Trading Company, signed a deal with Egypt's Sumed to provide 222,000 cubic meters of gas oil storage capacity and CD Carrier for re-export to Europe. Egypt's petroleum Ministry said in a statement on Tuesday. The company has also signed a second deal to supply fuel oil storage capacity of an additional 165,000 cubic meters in the Red Sea port of Ain Sokhna. And now turning to Turkey. Turkey launched on Tuesday, one of its largest operations against alleged supporters of the U.S.-based Muslim clerk Fatullah Gulen, who only actually lives here about an hour and a half north in the Pocono mountain range of Philadelphia. Ordering the arrest of well over a thousand people, state media reported, according to Yahoo News. Tuesday's operation related to a police force examination in 2010 for those seeking to become deputy inspectors and allegations that some of those taking part had received the questions in advance, state-owned Anadolu news agency reported. So far, 124 suspects have been detained in the operation, launched by Ankara's chief prosecutor's office and extending across 76 provinces in that country. More Turkish suppression resumes in that country as well. And lastly, in Sudan, security forces, according to IOL News in South Africa, arrested 14 professors who were gathering to protest outside Khartoum University on Tuesday, witnesses said, as, government, as anti-government demonstrations neared the end of their eighth week. Doctors also rallied outside state and private hospitals in Sudan's capital and other cities against the rule of President Omar al-Bashir. Union members, students, opposition activists, and others frustrated with economic hardships have held near daily protests since December 19th and the most sustained challenge to Bashir's three decades in power. And last, turning to a policy proposal that was spoken about last week during the uh, anti cutter conference that we had held, focuses on a organization which is uh, somewhat close to uh, the interests of the Middle East Forum as it relates to Israel, but more dealing with that of a uh, proposal which they have come up to effectively uh, advocate for ending the uh, status quo between the Israelis and Palestinians by granting a certain mass of land to Hamas in the uh, northern Gaza Strip and extending the uh, Gaza's whatever polity will eventually be their control of their territory to Egypt. The proposal itself is called the New State Solution. There are many proposals to end the Israeli Palestinian conflict with all sorts of fancy and seemingly clever names, none of which have come close to ultimately solving the conflict. While some are relatively harmless and well-intentioned efforts, others are extremely dangerous gambles with the safety and security of Israelis and their neighbors, including American national security interests. Such a proposal is called the New State Solution, which bizarrely, and I quote from their uh, policy proposal here, proposes joining a coastal section of the northern Sinai Peninsula to the territory of Gaza, end quote, forming an expanded Palestinian state to the south of Israel, And our analysis being, if it's the current situation with the way that the politics work, giving its leadership, Hamas, a far broader base of operations in order to achieve its ultimate aim of the destruction of Israel as enunciated in its charter. This may not be the goal of the Israeli proponents of this solution, but in my opinion, having served in the Israeli defense forces, it is the inevitable outcome. One of the most often utilized tactics in the history of warfare is the incremental gain of increased territory in order to expand the base of operations to be used against an enemy. Almost every military strategist worth their weight has used it and has even become the strategy of choice of many modern terrorist organizations. Nevertheless, over the past year, Israeli security experts associated with the new state solution plan have said that this is a new idea. But neither is it new nor a solution, but it flies in the face of a millennia of military, diplomatic, and political strategy. The solution proposes giving those who control Gaza control of territory larger than the West Bank and Gaza put together with a government that could be, and quoted by the proposal, fully sovereign without making foreign military incursions and with the freedom to defend itself by itself. The policy would lend Hamas more space to prepare, resources to wield, And hiding places to launch attacks against israel it also outrageously claims that the security risk to israel's population centers would be reduced amir avivi a general backing the plan admits the perception and this is a quote from his the perception that all the land is ours among palestinians manifests itself elsewhere and everywhere hence one cannot find a single map in palestinian government ministry schools or online that features modern israel my take Granting more land to Hamas will not change the Palestinian vision of eradicating Israel. It will energize the Islamists and spur them to wage greater jihad against the Jewish state. More on this position and the New State Solution, in an article that I hope to release in the weeks ahead. Thank you for joining the Middle East Forum Century Radio broadcast today. Thank you to Delaney Jancic for arranging all of our guests, our production assistant. And to all of you, our listeners, for joining in on this broadcast. Hope everyone has a good week. Goodbye from MEF.